Welcome everybody to this event uh, that we're hosting at the LSE as part of our COVID-19 response. So we're going to be looking today at assessing the impact of COVID-19 from mortality to misery. I'm Professor Julia Black, I'm the Strategic Director of Innovation here at the LSE and also a Professor in Law. And I'm delighted to be joined by a very illustrious panel today uh, to talk over this incredibly critical issue with me. So delighted to introduce uh, first of all, Professor Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioural Science at, London, at the LSE. He's head of our Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science and Director of the Executive MSc in Behavioural Science, author of Sunday Times' best-selling book, Happiness by Design and Happiness Ever After. Daisy Fancourt is Associate Professor of Psychobiology and Epimediology and a Welcome Research Fellow in the Psychobiology Group, Department of Behavioural Science and Health at UCL. And Daisy studied at Oxford University and King's College London before completing her PhD in psychoneuroimmunology at UCL. And moving on to Richard. Richard Layard is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the LSE. He's a labour economist who's worked for most of his life on how to reduce unemployment and inequality. And he's also one of the first economists to work on happiness. His main current interest is how better mental health could improve our social and economic life. Turning to Gus O'Donnell, Gus is a chairman, this chairman of Frontier Economics and the former cabinet secretary and head of the Home Civil Service. And then finally, last but not least, Carol Crocker is professor of economics at Imperial College London. She's author of an Institute of Fiscal Studies report on the health consequences of response to COVID-19. So what we want to aim to do today is, is discuss across the panel this very challenging issue of balancing of mortality and misery, uh, as it's been expressed here. And the event will be recorded. And if you would like to post questions, if you could use the Q&A button uh, and that function, then the questions will come through to me. Could you please not have a, that I can't, we can't use the use hand function. So don't raise your hand. If you want to ask a question, just use the Q&A button. And our Twitter hashtag for the event today is hashtag LSE COVID-19. Okay, so that's all our introductions done. So I think we should get started. Um, so, Richard, if I could turn to you first to um, think about, well, how could we be addressing this question of assessing the different impacts of COVID-19 um, from the point of view of mortality, obviously for death rates, but also from the point of view of other measures, notably, notably well-being? Well, that's what we've been doing, um, because obviously COVID affects all aspects of our life. Uh, it's not just uh, mortality versus income, it's unemployment, it's mental health, it's schooling, it's so many things. And even if we could forecast what the effects of a policy, say locking down uh, or, or unlocking down, would be on those things, we've still got to find a way of combining them, weighting them, to get some overall judgment. And that's where the well-being comes on. It's not an add-on, it's the overall uh, criterion by which we assess the importance of all the other things uh, that are happening. We know a lot about well-being. The main measure that we use is life satisfaction. Uh, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days, not to 10? Uh, and uh, we know a lot about what uh, affects that. For example, we know that if a person becomes unemployed, they lose 0.7 points out of 10. Uh, in terms of life satisfaction. To get diagnosed for depression or anxiety, they lose 0.7 points. Uh, if they die, they obviously lose uh, the well-being which they would otherwise have had. So we can blend all these things together to get an overall 
measure. And what we've been trying to do is to think about when is the right time to progressively lift the lockdown. And we concluded uh, that the lockdown was justified originally, but that as time goes on, uh, the costs in terms of things like unemployment become so high uh, that it's necessary to progressively lift it. Sometime, perhaps, uh, our finding was in June. We also, I think, really importantly, ought to use the wellbeing framework to think about after the lockdown. What kind of society do we want? What kind of government policies? What kind of uh, ways in which we behave to each other? I think on the government side, uh, when people talk about levelling up, they should be talking about levelling up well-being, not levelling up incomes. Uh, and we know so much about what affects the inequality of well-being, and it is above all things like mental health, human relationships. So what is crucial in the next phase and in the spending review, which is going to happen later this year, is that we give extra weight to things to do uh, with the, I would, what I would call the social infrastructure rather than the physical infrastructure, how fast we can get to Birmingham. So social infrastructure, obviously physical health, but I would say even more important, mental health, social care, child well-being, especially making well-being a major goal for our schools. That's public policy, but I think also we're seeing a change in how people behave to each other. They are caring more for each other. That's the kind of society we want. We don't want to go back to the ultra-competitive, zero-sum uh, objectives of, of the society uh, which we had before COVID. We want to move to a positive-sum set of objectives where people are setting themselves much more of a goal to contribute to the happiness of others. Uh, I belong to Action for Happiness uh, and its members uh, have pledged to try to create as much happiness in the world as we can. And I think that's the spirit which we're seeing developing over this period. We've got to capture it, hang on to it, and then we will really have a silver lining from this whole terrible episode. Thank you, Richard, for, for those thoughts. Carol, could I turn to you next? Yes, thank you, Julia. Um, my, what I'm going to talk about is the, the, the immediate uh, impact on the NHS and the longer term on the NHS. So obviously COVID is a, a health pandemic. So the immediate focus of the government and the NHS was on saving lives from COVID-19, particularly when they saw what was happening in Italy, which is a very well-resourced healthcare system. That meant that 30% of resources were immediately diverted away from all other activity towards COVID treatment. All electives were cancelled. And that includes not just sort of hips, knees and cataracts, but includes treatment for ongoing treatment for cancer patients in some cases and cancer diagnosis, cancer surgery, because it was deemed to be too risky to do it in an environment where there's a lot of COVID around. Um, and on top of those huge cancellations, we saw a big behavioural response that I don't think everybody had expected, certainly not policymakers, I think that people stopped going to A&E. A&E uh, attendances are about 50% down. And whilst that may include some people that shouldn't have gone to A&E in the first place, there's a lot of people who, for example, might have had minor heart attacks um, and strokes who've not been attending A&E where the timing of treatment is critical. 
But we've also seen people staying away from their GPs. Um, so they've just basically stayed away from the health service. So there are all these short-term things that are going on. There's also been incredible demands on staff. Staff have been working a lot of overtime. Um, new nurses have been brought in. Uh, doctors come back from retirement. And all that is going to have an implication for people. In the short term, there are a whole pile of people who are not getting treated. Um, in the longer term, there will be this huge backlog of cases that are building up because they're not being treated now. Um, and sort of who is that going to affect? Well, it's going to affect people who are users of health services. And in fact, users of health services are not disproportionately um, distributed across the population, obviously. Most of our health expenditure goes on people who are over 45 or oh, indeed over 55. Much of that health expenditure goes on people who are more deprived, uh, people who are older, people who live in more vulnerable communities, people who are black and ethnic minority, because they have arrived at that point in their lives with, with worse health. So they're the people that are going to be predominantly losing out from this backlog of services and these delayed services. And then finally, I think there's going to be a longer term problem for government, which is that I think we're going to see a lot of nurses and doctors feel quite unhappy about how they've been treated. They've been prepared to put in the extra effort because this is their mission. They, they believe in the NHS. But I think as time goes on, we're going to see problems in recruiting nurses against a backdrop where we already have about 50,000 nurse shortages. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see many of those doctors uh, in the NHS perhaps taking early retirement and possibly even seeking to do private work because there will be a pent-up demand for private work as well. So I think the position for the NHS going forwards needs to be worried about a lot. Yes, as we move on. So as we explore these different ranges of impacts, Gus, could I turn to you to, 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 to reflect on how well these may be being thought about at the moment in, in policy terms, in policy making? Oh, certainly. And, and I can build on what Richard and Carol have said in the sense of trying to give an understanding as a former cabinet secretary and a former number 10 press secretary as to why mortality would have got a lot more weight than misery. Um, first of all, you can imagine the Prime Minister being faced with those um, extrapolations of how many people might die, the fact that if we did nothing, the NHS would be overwhelmed, there'd be all these pictures at hospitals of people queuing up, not being able to get onto ventilators and all the rest of it. Very visible, very immediate, and hence what you get is a response which concentrates on getting rid of the visible and the immediate. And as Carol said, what then happens is 30% of the resources get moved away. The invisible, all of those health consequences of the NHS not doing all the non-COVID stuff, no one will see immediately. Right? They'll come back later. They won't be as visible. So they're not as much of a political problem. So that's the issue you've got to deal with. Secondly, of course, what this does from a political point of view, it gives the focus on COVID. So what you do is in your press conferences, you put up the number of cases, the number of deaths. 
Why do you do that? Because that's the thing that you're hoping to turn around. That's the thing you can control, and that's going to be good news. So it makes a lot of sense to have all the focus on that. What you've done in all of this and why you've got such brilliant, amazing lockdown compliance is you've scared everybody stupid, right? You have absolutely put the fear of God into them. So compliance has been much better than I think any of us from a behavioral point of view would have expected. They kept the message very simple, uh, but it's been very scary. So that will have its implications as we try and come out of it. Now, if we move from that, so if that's the way it's been handled, what we found is that that means the scientists, the epidemiologists, all the people estimating the COVID stuff are at the center. If you look at SAGE, that's where the concentration of expertise is. There aren't economists around the table at SAGE, right? And for the recovery, what we really need is to move to the stage where we put the social back in front of science. We need some social scientists there, right? We need to understand as we move forward, as uh, Richard was explaining, once you've got the R8 down far enough and you know that you're not going to go into second wave, the question then becomes, well, do we wait till R goes to zero? Or is it okay if it's 0.1? Well, that's a cost-benefit calculation. You know, you've got probabilities of these things. But what you do know is if you carry on waiting, the economic costs get bigger and bigger. And these go up non-linearly, right? They're, 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 they move just like the, the virus, in a sense. They get worse and worse and not at a linear rate. So we need to move quite rapidly to sorting these things out. So I'd say the next stage, the crucial part, is we put more attention on the misery that we're causing by the lockdown. We think about ways in which we reduce the misery but don't put at risk certain people. So getting people back to work in a safe way, uh, trying to work on building as well. The phrase you'll hear all the time now is building back better, right? Yeah. That'll be, you know, get Brexit done, yeah. the, um, you know, all of that stuff. It'll now be building back better. And we'll try and get the recovery, I hope, moving to a stage where we learn some lessons from this. You know, we learn about, as, as Richard said, there are well-being impacts here. Uh, people who lose their jobs, and it will be particularly young people, particularly, dare I say, LSE graduates. You know, graduates from universities are going to face a really tough labor market. And we're going to have to really help that young group who are, their job prospects are going to be terrible. We need to learn from previous episodes. The GDP numbers, I'm not a big fan of GDP, are going to be fairly meaningless. They're going to bounce back quite quickly, I'd say, because this is a government-induced recession and we're uh, offsetting the restrictions that we put on, but it will be a very jobs-poor recovery. What we've done, because of what the Bank of England's done, is make interest rates basically zero. The government today is borrowing for negative interest rates. Uh, and we put the price of labor up because you're going to have to do all of these things like uh, physical distancing and all the rest of it. So it'll be a jobs poor recovery unless government does something really serious to do that. Final point I'd say is um, international coordination in this has been truly dreadful. And um, you contrast it with a global financial crisis. Yeah. And it's quite dramatic. So I'll leave it there. Hand over to Daisy who knows what she's talking about. Excellent answer to pick up there from there. Daisy, over to you. I want to talk about what we've been learning so far about mental health during the pandemic. Now, trying to predict the impact of COVID is extremely hard for mental health. 
We do have data from some previous pandemics like SARS and MERS and Ebola, but COVID is unique in its scale and the dramatic social consequences it's had. So of course, one of the obvious implications has been the enforced social isolation and the withdrawal of face-to-face -face contact. But this isn't really typical social isolation. It's not been a gradual withdrawal from society over years for individuals, but it's been enforced. And also we've not actually been fully isolated as we've still been able to engage digitally. So actually the experience shares more similarities in some ways to experiences like incarceration and long haul expeditions like submarine voyages, overwintering in Antarctica and space travel. It's been abrupt in onset. People have often been closeted with a few others and have actually lacked space on their own. But there's also been this hope of returning to normal life afterwards. So to really try and understand the mental health impact, past scenarios can give us some clues, but there's no substitute for data. Now, data from sources like YouGov have suggested that mental health got worse in the lead up to lockdown. There were clear decreases in things like happiness and increases in stress and fear. And at UCL, we've been tracking this since with the COVID-19 social study. We have 100,000 people who are being tracked weekly with good stratification across sociodemographic characteristics and we're weighting the data to population norms. So in terms of mental health, what we're finding is that since lockdown came in, anxiety and depression have been higher than usual and life satisfaction lower than usual, but they've been fairly stable. There's been some slight decrease in anxiety and slight improvement in life satisfaction and some specific fears like catching COVID have decreased, but it's not been a full return to usual levels. But what this means is that lockdown itself hasn't made things worse, although we aren't really improving enough. But these data just so averages. So the key question is, are we all in this together as we've heard mentioned a few times? Now, actually the truth is we're not. If we look at age, for example, we find there's worse mental health experiences amongst uh, younger adults they're feeling least in control of their mental health, least in control of their futures. They're most concerned about the virus getting out of control again. If we look at loneliness, we know that young people are at heightened risk of loneliness, but actually we've been comparing these risk factors and we're finding an exacerbation of that usual risk. So being young is an even greater risk factor for loneliness than normal. We also know this is not equal across socioeconomic position. In the early weeks of lockdown, people of low socioeconomic position were 1.5 times more likely to experience loss of work, seven times more likely to be unable to pay their bills, and four times more likely to be unable to access sufficient food. Now, this is even with the measures that were taken in by government to support people. And there's been no evidence of improvement of these inequalities over time. They're persisting. And I think as the inequalities become even more dominant as a theme, we have to consider the implications for mental health, both experience of adversities like loss of employment and worry about these experiences are both being linked in in our data to poorer mental health over time. So the course is the question is to are things going to get better as lockdown is eased? Well, actually, our data from the last week are showing that there's not been any improvement yet. It's also possible that actually there won't be an improvement. Uncertainty breeds anxiety. And we're actually seeing there are decreases in confidence in the last week in government and decreases in adherence to guidelines. So it's possible that actually this next period might be worse for mental health than the one we've just been through. Data from previous pandemics also suggests that the mental health effects can be long lasting. And I think particularly given some of the traumas people have had, such as bereavements and the difficulties in accessing social support for these traumas, it's likely we're going to be facing some quite serious issues for certain individuals. Now we can hope there'll be positives like increases in social cohesion and support for neighbours that persist. 
but I don't think we can rely on individual growth alone. So my final point is then what can we be doing? Now our examination of inequalities is suggesting that the measures so far haven't gone far enough to reduce the inequalities and experiences. So there's obviously going to be a need to tackle this at a higher level, particularly given we know that adversities can trigger worse mental health. But it's also not just about stopping the adversities, because if we want to protect mental health, we have to stop people having weeks of worrying about these adversities before they happen. So forward planning and clear strategies that people can relate to and understand them, how they're going to be protective might help people to feel safer and help their mental health. And Gus mentioned about learning lessons from this. And the truth is we've had warnings about pandemics like this for a long time, but this has caught us rather unprepared. So we have to learn from the mental health side of this as well, in terms of what were the factors that made things worse, what were the things that were protective, so that next time we're not having to consider in quite the same way this trade-off between mortality and misery. Thank you. I'm now going to pass over to our next speaker, who is Paul. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Daisy. So, um, hello, everybody. It, it, I was going to wait to hear what everybody else said and then pick up some themes because it saved me having to make advanced notes and plan. Um, I, so what I did is I think I'll, I'll, I'll pick up, first of all, on the trade-off between life expectancy and life experience, because that's essentially the two main attributes that we each value and that we value when we're making public policy, is we would like people to live longer, better lives. Um, and as Gus so eloquently said, we've, we've recast that emphasis and focus towards life expectancy and completely away from life experience um and so the question then is is that proportionate and if not what we can do about it so i suppose the first thing to say is that it isn't and because uh, i think we're at the point where i think from any reasonable welfare calculus i think most people would agree that the school should go back but we're in a but we're in a state where because the life expectancy, i.e. measured by mortality risks, has become so prominent and become, you know, the stay at home worked because we, we made people scared, that now we can't unlock that fear. And so we're paying disproportionate attention to mortality risks away from life experiences. And it's not just people's experiences in the future, but it's people's experiences right now. Um, many, many school kids are at home in environments where home isn't a safe place. Um, we often talk about, you know, we, we kind of think of the home as being somewhere that's nice and warm. Um, and for most of them, many, many of us it is, but for many, many of us it isn't. And, and school was the one safe place that many of these kids went to. It was the place they got fed. Um, and so it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's a concern, I think, that we've kind of stoked up this fear to an extent that, we now can't release it in ways that would be social welfare improving. And I think it's incumbent on us to think about ways in which we might go about doing that. Um, and I also want to say, I think, I suppose it's, it, this is about m misery. And I suppose it would be nice to have some happiness in this as well. Um, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we, we do actually care about fun too. Um, and our lives are not just about survival. And I think, again, it's an interesting discussion, thinking about sort of two of the main things that are, are the, uh, the forefront of my own mind at the moment. One is whether we go back to school and to what extent kids go back and when. And the second, whether premiership football should start again. Um, and again, you know, the conversation is almost like you feel have to apologise because you think you're trivialising mortality risk by saying 
football should go back. I think football should go back because the 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 the, the social welfare gains that come to huge swathes of the, of, of the population from being able to watch and enjoy football outweigh the mortality risks that come from footballers going back. But you kind of we're in a position where the conversation becomes so framed around the mortality risk that if you if you say that you kind of almost have to apologise for appearing like a like a sort of genocidal maniac. So um, I think we just you know we shouldn't lose sight of of the trade offs that we're all willing to make in much calmer times because all of us are willing to make 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 um, a whole range of trade offs of life expectancy for life experience and. There's something about COVID-19 that reframes that, and probably rightly so to some degree, but not to the extent that it has so far. And I want to make just one then, I'll just move on secondly, I think, to one point that was kind of resonating in my mind from what you just said last of all, Daisy, which is about the intergenerational transfers. Um, I think that, again, in karma times, most people, when and I used to do a lot of work in this area back in the day as a health as a health economist, when you ask people questions about trade-offs of um, you know people over the ages, for example, there's a very very strong preference for giving priority to younger people over older people. Um, and one of the the crumbs of comfort, if you can say that about a pandemic, is that it's incredibly respectful of age is that it, it thankfully has very limited effects, at least from what we can understand so far, on younger people, children especially. Our policy responses have been disproportionately intergenerationally transferring from young to older people. And again, there may have been a time at the beginning of the pandemic when that was, a, was the right response. It was a proportional response. But we've got ourselves into a position where we can't unlock that and of course, it's been it's been it's been really compounded and made so much worse by the fact that we took people who had COVID-19, elderly people from hospitals into care homes and then we spread the virus around care homes. So we're now in a position where we where we've actively caused harm amongst elderly people to the extent that now it makes it even more difficult for us to unlock that conversation about the intergenerational transfer that has you know taken place from. Um, younger people towards older ones. Excellent. So there's huge amounts to pick up on there. And as you can imagine, quite a lot of questions coming through. One of the things that really strikes me listening to you all speak there is, is a number of things around coming out of lockdown are partly to do with the science, the, the test, the trace, the tra test, tra track and trace regime, for example. Um, and to what extent that can come in, into place. But it's actually a lot about confidence. And coming back to that point about the message being overly successful, stay at home, stay away from the NHS, uh, and the impacts that's having. So I'm thinking also in terms of mental health and well-being and anxiety levels. So one of the things, obviously, to in order to even move ourselves on from, from where we are now in terms of behaviours, um, and perhaps moving away from our current lockdown position is about people feeling confident and safe, isn't it? That they can they can actually go towards life experience because their fear in a right relation to life expectancy can be is being adequately managed. So how could we 
what are the policies that the government could be doing to actually start addressing that confidence and those anxiety issues? Carol? I, I have a very immediate one, which is, as we've all said, the message has been super, super simple. But it seems to me, and that's hurt predominantly the young. Um, and I think one of the messages could be that essentially the risks for the under 40s is tiny. And the under 40s are the parents of small children. Um, and if we get a simple message that essentially the risk of COVID to you, unless you have an underlying health condition already or are a health worker, of, is, is less than, you know, some other risk that's easy to, it may be less than crossing the road. I don't know exactly what risk you benchmark it against, but I think a simple message, the risk of dying from COVID for this age group is, and this compares with the risk of some other activity that we do all the time. Um, and I think that would be very helpful because I think people don't understand risks very easily. Um, and certainly parents who are worried about taking their children to school um, seem to be not really understanding, I think, what the risks are for them and for their children. Yeah, Gus. Yeah, I, I'm just backing up what Carol said. I mean, one of those, you can counter fear with facts. And one of the facts I think is true is that your children are more likely to die on the roads going to school than they are from COVID, right, being run over. So, you know, we, we do take children to school despite the fact they have to cross roads. So, so that's got to be right. So if you can conquer this with facts, you then need to say, well, how do, you get cross, how do you get across facts in a trusted way? And I think, to be honest, um, we know from the, the figures on trust that uh, it's not politicians that do this. And there's, there's no, it's not an accident that the politicians are surrounded by experts. We have, for this government, there's certain irony for me in the discovery of experts being the ones that people trust. And so we need to get those trusted experts going out there explaining the risks for various groups. You know, instead of talking about how many deaths there are and all the rest of it, we need a bit more optimism out there. We need to explain the chances of someone getting this, the chances of a child getting it at school and then transmitting it to a parent, you know, and, and what the issue is for those parents. Carol pointed out the parents are relatively young and, again, in that very low age group. So whilst one might need to do... Uh, and in looking at those risk things, it would certainly tell you about those areas where you need to be careful, where you need to keep it going. I think the other problem I'd raise is the language that was used at the start, which I strongly disagree with, was this business of social isolation, social distance. We don't need social distancing. We need physical distancing, right? And we need social togetherness. So I hope that this community spirit that we should have engendered through this, helping your neighbours and all the rest of it, and having the community spirit to know when not to put them at risk, uh, all of those good things we need to keep, and hopefully we will keep, whilst maintaining certain simple rules about um, distance. Now, uh, I don't know, I'm not the expert, but I'd love to know, you know, we, we are confused about these factors that will help us reduce this fear because the messaging on masks has been all over the place. The messaging on distancing itself 
you know, we have two meters, Germany, WHO, one meter. I mean, what's the answer? Uh, and I think final point I make here for an LSE audience is <clears throat> within government, you've got a lot of people who, uh, ministers who deal quite a lot of the time with economists because economists have been, we're like, I've always said like Japanese knotweed. We try and get in there and we try and get in all the policy <laughs> debates we can. <laughs> That's not so true of psychologists and lots of other disciplines. Uh, they don't see them very much. So at the start, I think there was this question of trying to understand the nature of the evidence and the uncertainties around it. As I said for economists, most of our time we have to explain what we don't know rather than what we do know and dealing with uncertainty. And politics is essentially decision-making under uncertainty. So we need to kind of build that in to the next stage of the messaging but I'm not confident. No, excellent. Thank you. So, yeah, Paul. No, I was just going to say, because it was a health pandemic, it was seen as a health pandemic, so it becomes a health professional's purview and remit. And so it's not a, not a social science, it's not an economic or a social problem, but of course mm-hmm. it absolutely is and uh, was from the start, of course. Yeah. And so I think the welfare economists in particular need to be around the table having conversations because they, we think about trade-offs. We think about quantifying, as as was said with the very first thing that I think Richard said, about capturing the things of value in a way that allows them to be expressed in metrics that will enable you to decide the best use of policy. And that's something that I think health professionals, it's, it's, it's not what they're trained to do. Um, and so, so I think um, that there, there needs to be a, a more complete conversation. Yeah. One thing if I can turn to actually, just looking at the questions which are which are coming in from um, from those who are joining us uh, remotely, as everybody does now. And, and Gus, I'm definitely going to start using your term physical distancing rather than social distancing. I think we should definitely be 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 picking that one up. Um, quite a few coming through in relation to employment, future of work, um, and thinking about, you know, what this might mean for the restructuring of work in a number of different ways. One, for some people, um, you know, not having to commute, et cetera, working at home is giving actually mental health benefits. Um, but for others, obviously, it's not an ideal situation, and yet others are facing redundancies, um, et cetera. So, so if you're thinking about how could we, in terms of the building back better, and absolutely that is also going to catch on, we'll be thinking about the future of work and supporting people through what is going to be, I think, probably quite a bumpy period uh, coming out so that we can capture some of the, perhaps the benefits that have been from lockdown, but thinking about how people might be managing people's mental well-being as they move back. Richard. Yes, I, I think this is going to be a very, very difficult period. Um, I mean, many people were astonished at the, the long-lasting effects of the financial crisis, mm. which was a, a minor dislocation compared with the dislocations which are going on at the moment. Uh, I mean, every time some firm goes bankrupt, a supply chain gets interfered with, and that affects the people lower, further down the supply chain. So we're going to see a, 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 an ongoing waves of bankruptcies um, and people thrown out of work also from firms that, that continue in operation. Um, and I think, you know, we've got to think of this in 
in an immediate sense, not not in terms of the future of work or something, but mm. in terms of this, this is a, a crisis um, of a kind which we have uh, in a smaller scale encountered before. So before we saw, this is the work which um, many of us did at LSE in the 80s and 90s, we've seen the huge dangers of allowing large numbers of people to go on being unemployed for a long period. Uh, they get bit detached from the labour force. You can even have a situation where vacancies start emerging, but people have got so depressed and dislocated from the labour force that uh, they remain unemployed. We've got to find, I think, for the sake of the economy, but also even more for the sake of the people, ways of keeping people engaged in the labour force. So I've always thought that we shouldn't essentially allow people to continue uh, on benefit uh, for more than, let's say, a year, we should instead guarantee them work. Mm -hmm. And that's the way in which we support people. Uh, and the well-being evidence shows that they actually, even if uh, it, they are being deprived of a right to benefit, they actually prefer uh, being offered support in terms of work. So I think we already need to be putting in place major programmes particularly for the young people uh, that uh, Gus and others have mentioned, um, programmes which make sure that we get people fully connected to an employer of some sort, uh, at least within six months if they're under 25 or within a year for older people. Um, by how? By uh, offering uh, employers money or taking on people at risk of long-term unemployment. Uh, this is what was done successfully twice before. It was done uh, in the 1997, it was done again in 2009. Uh, these programs of offering inducements to employers on a competitive basis to provide opportunities for people who would otherwise uh, get just missed out uh, these have worked, they've been shown to save at least half as much of their original costs because, of course, you're, you're, you're paying people to do something rather than do nothing. Uh, so I, I would like to see the job guarantee becoming a major subject of discussion and, and then how to deliver it. And, of course, you have to start delivering it before the, the cliff edge. Any other panellists want to come in on, on that? Carol? I make one quick point, which is um, that, in fact, when there's not much work around, the opportunity cost of acquiring skills is low. A lot of people don't want to do training because that training period takes them out of the labour market. But if there isn't much of a labour market, then I think we should be subsidising, as well as jobs, which Richard, I think we should be subsidising jobs with training. Because the people that are really going to lose out, and we know this from work on recessions, are the people who are least skilled and least able to cope with this. So that we should be pushing not jobs, but jobs with training, jobs with a future. And that training aspect, people will trade off because they would get no money otherwise or just benefits. They're prepared to invest in that training because it makes more sense economically for them as well as more sense long term. I agree. Uh, yeah, could I come Absolutely. in? Yeah, definitely, Gus, so, go for it. Um, I would say um, I've been 
working with some others, particularly Andy Haldane at the Bank of England, on precisely how one might solve that problem at the young end, because we're going to have very high youth unemployment. How can we uh, help these people, particularly those people with relatively low skills, to acquire skills and to become employable? I think that's going to be one big aspect. The other part I'd like to mention is, can we, in the terms of building back better and levelling up, to use all the government's jargon, uh, find ways to help uh, which which uh, involve physical infrastructure, particularly outside, let's say, London and the South East to start with, which are domestic labour intensive, which is what we want, and will create jobs for people that maybe at the start aren't necessarily very highly skilled. One area I'd give you an example, improving the energy efficiency of the existing housing stock. Yeah. Good for our green essential, you know, that's got to be a bit of a no-brainer. Very high uh, labour intensity, domestic labour intensity yeah. at the start will we'll generate some skills. You know, we've done these things. We've, we've converted all of the nation to North Sea gas before. You know, why don't we do this? We could start in the north. We could start with a poorer housing, we'll reduce their bills in the longer term. Uh, we'll give people skills. And, and it would lead to a, a better future, a lower carbon future. So I think we need those sorts of initiatives. If the government is going to spend a lot of money, if they're going to put all of that physical capital, as Richard hinted at, into saving a few minutes by a road or a railway, then I would say that's really not the answer. And at the moment, I'm, I fear that the bias is towards looking at the wrong kinds of capital in t projects. Yeah. So social capital, i.e. the volunteering, the skills for the young, and something big on energy efficiency. Some big ideas. Yeah. Daisy. Something I'd just add to what we've been discussing is that it's been very interesting watching the outpouring of volunteers across mm -hmm. this pandemic. Now, normally we expect to see a social gradient across who is a volunteer in ordinary life. But actually what we've been looking at in the last week with our data is who are the volunteers at the moment. And what's really interesting is when we compare people who are currently unemployed with those who are employed in various different capacities, we're not seeing any difference in terms of the volunteering, either for the formal volunteering schemes, like offering to help out either through NHS apps or as volunteer delivery drivers, etc. But we're also not seeing any difference in terms of the community mutual aid type activities. So this suggests that people really want to play a part at the moment. They want to be doing something. So that reinforces what we've already heard from Richard and Gus on this, and that it's not that people want to be sitting at home on benefits. They want to be out there playing their part. And it's, it's interesting. We've had this natural experiment that's really highlighted how much people want to volunteer and want to have work. And I'm hoping that that might give us a bit of a clue about people's behaviours if job opportunities become available rather than just volunteering opportunities. But Daisy, just kind of, so you've got, so one of the questions coming just actually as you were speaking is, does, does your data show that community spirit is evenly distributed across the, across society, rather kind of inequalities and distribution of community spirit, as it were? There are some um, inequalities, for example. So we often find that women are volunteering more, and that's persisted for some of the jobs, some of the volunteering opportunities during COVID. But actually, we are, we are seeing generally that there are there's, there's less of a gradient we might be expecting to see normally across these volunteering opportunities. I mean, these data are still being analysed at the moment. We've been working on them further today. Um, but I think it's interesting. It's not it's not like usual life. We're seeing that there are differences in these predictors now. Yeah. Paul, I'm just wondering also, Paul, if, you, if you've got across any cross-country comparisons we're, we're getting, any early data we're getting to see from other countries and responses there. But yeah, Paul. 
Um, no, so I was just going to quickly say that, first of all, the conversation around work um, emphasises for me the importance of purpose in people's lives. I've obviously written about that and made a strong case for why that's an important component of happiness. And when we're um, thinking about training and jobs of the future, it's that those that people find those jobs meaningful and purposeful. That's that's absolutely vital. Um, but then to sound that maybe a little bit more of a pessimistic note, perhaps, because um, it's very nice that we're talking about social cohesion, volunteering, and and the like, and that's good. I I I'm I'm not overly optimistic that that's going to last for 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 long, and particularly when the intergenerational transfer becomes more stark. Um, I think we I think the politicians and um, academics too need to be alert to that challenge. What we're going to do when people start realizing once the fear dissipates. And because, of course, the doubt, I agree with everything that was said before. We need to remind people of their, um, like, for example, the under 40s risk. But once they actually are reminded of that and the fear dissipates, <laughs> then there's a good chance they're going to say, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> we did all this and the returns to us have been what? And so I do, I do think that it's important that we are alert to that because I think there's a real prospect of that social cohesion breaking down. Is there a risk also just picking up, uh, and again, a question that's been asked is about communication. So it's not so much the under 40s that are at risk, but they'll pass it on to the over 60s. They'll go and visit their parents da, 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 so that we end up with a social stratification by lockdown age, as it were, so that you have, you know, some age cohorts who are, we have to remain socially isolated or physically isolated, but often socially isolated as well um, because of that risk of transmission. So the intergenerational effects will be amplified, as it were. Yeah, but can I just, but, but just also quickly on that, in, 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 in some of our earlier work as well, when you look to the trade-offs that people are willing to make for life experience, for life expectancy, it's, it's often many of the older people that want the life experiences because they've actually had a lot of the life, life expectancy. And so I don't, I, whilst of course we need to do what we can to shield and you know, um, allow people that want to stay away from risk to do that in insofar as that's you know uh we we can we also need to allow people to express preference in, and to express choice and free will over that because many people will willingly willingly for themselves of course there are the risks that they then incur, uh, have for other people but willingly for themselves make those kinds of trade-offs knowing that they're going to be putting their risk their their own life to some degree at risk um in order to do the things that they want to be doing which in, which which includes seeing their grand grand grandkids carol come I, in there i don't think people really understand the age gradient in covid there's been a huge number now of studies including an excellent one by ben goldacre which showed that the risk of dying and this is in a population not of those just admitted to hospitals but the risk of dying really is incredibly steep with age and non-linear. So I do think that 80-year-olds who say, I'd like to see my grandchildren, are putting themselves not only at danger of a very nasty death, but also at danger of overwhelming the health service again. So I think we need to be careful about this message. It is unfortunate, rather like the Spanish uh, flu epidemic of 1918 predominantly hit the young, because there was an earlier flu epidemic that had made many of the elder, older population immune, this pandemic, this disease hits the old. 
And we do need to be clear about that because yeah. there's an externality that isn't just about dying yourself, but about because you die in hospital, or in, I mean, these are not people in care homes, but because you die, you're going to expose healthcare workers. And you're going to, most of the transmission now is in hospital and in, in, in care homes. And yeah. We need to understand that as a society. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, and of course, made worse by the fact that the, if you do get seriously all the time spent in an ICU is obviously longer as well. So that's, that's also an important consideration. I just, I guess it's just, you know, everything is about balance, isn't it? It's about finding the right balance. And I just, it just feels to me like we've kind of pushed that pendulum so far towards the risk mitigation um, that, that, we, that we need a, a more complete conversation about um, proportionality, I guess. I think one of the um, issues just to come back on there, Carol, is just to pick up on, on something you were saying there about our, and you said in your comments about our, 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 our interface or our interaction attitudes now towards the healthcare system. So um, some questions are coming in, uh, for example, given, given that kind of that public message that your own private behaviour will have a a social an impact and, and a negative externality on the healthcare system. You need to adjust your own individual wants, desires, preferences to accommodate that that externality. So you need to internalise those costs as well in economic speak. Um, so a number of questions are coming in, say, thinking about, for example, the link with underlying health conditions such as obesity. Will this have an impact on us to uh, in our ongoing behaviour to make, make us sort of act more healthily so that we won't drain resources from the healthcare system. Um, and then also in terms of our manner of engagement with the healthcare system, are people not interacting with it because they're scared or because actually they don't like the, the impersonality of engaging with their GP through, uh, you know, virtual means, etc. So we're seeing, in fact, some in some changes coming in the way the healthcare is being delivered. The, the doctors are saying, "Listen, we want to do this 20, you know, twenty years, but you know, we, we haven't been able to." So, how do you think, indeed, any of the panel think that this, uh, what we're going through now, is going to change how we view our health and social care system and the way that we, as individuals, interact with it? Not just in terms of what the policy response should be, but our individual engagement with it. Let me start very briefly because I'm sure the other panelists have views on this. But it's that I think actually in terms of things like engaging with GPs and engaging with health practitioners by a range of means, this is something the health service has been trying to push for years and has been, this is one of the good things I think about the pandemic. It's not going to suit everybody, but I have a brother who sees his cancer patients by, by telephone or by Zoom and actually, as a cancer patient, you don't want to be traveling on the underground because you have very low neutrophils. And this is not very nice for you. It's actually better to see someone. You feel safer seeing someone in your own house. So there will be groups for whom that works and there will be groups for whom it doesn't work. But I think there are enough groups for whom it works that I think we will see a, a change, a step change in the way that healthcare services are delivered. And I think that's a good thing. I, I think there's also a, a um, huge issue as to whether the public's attitude to the public sector um, is going to change as a result of this experience because the, the, most of the so-called key workers, people are, are, are deciding are, are really valuable, are, are employed or paid for by the public sector. And um, if we're going to improve those services, 
it's difficult to see how that can be done in the long run without people paying more taxes. Now, in, in, in some countries, especially Scandinavian countries, people seem to have taken on board the idea that taxes are things you pay for services rendered. They're payments from which everybody benefits. And there's a very peculiar attitude in Britain to taxes that they are robbery. And I just wonder whether this, this wave of communal feeling that we're going through couldn't provide the springboard for uh, a recasting of this debate uh, about taxes. Because I don't think that we're going to have the, the better kind of social infrastructure that we've been talking about earlier on, uh, unless we do have a higher level of taxes. Certainly, we've got to have better funding for the NHS. I've been one of those who thought that to break through this logjam, you might have to have a hypothecated uh, tax, a sort of special national insurance tax directed to the NHS. That's a very special debate. But I, I wonder if we can't hope that the, the public attitude to taxation could be changed a bit as a result of this experience of these so-called key workers being people that we're all paying for. Anybody else want to come in on that? Or should I? I'm happy to move on. So, and I'm being reminded by my events team, my apologies to people who've been sending in questions with their names attached to them, because I have been rolling up some of the themes of your questions, but I've been asked specifically to, uh, to attribute some of the questions. So here we go. So John McMahon, um, and a terrible um, different pronunciation, so please do forgive me. Um, so picking up on points made by a number of panellists, if we're to prioritise wellbeing, what role do you see for things like arts, culture, sport, nature, community sector, faith groups, etc.? Um, and how could they be recognised in planning for recovery, both in terms of infrastructure organisations, but also habits of being for all of us, um, and embedding those more directly into policy making? Daisy. Um, I think this is a really important question because obviously one of the sectors that's been the hardest hit by this pandemic has been the arts and cultural sector. And a lot of my research prior to this pandemic was looking at the impact of this sector on mental health and also on health behaviours um, and incidents of illness. And we know that there is a very strong and clear link between people having access to green space, to arts, to community groups, to cultural activities and a whole range of mental and physical health um, health problems. So um, I think the, the, there are a couple of worries here. One of them is that if we're seeing that the, the sector is less able to operate for a longer time, then lots of people aren't going to have the same kinds of coping mechanisms and resources they usually would for supporting their mental health, for encouraging social interaction, and also for getting them out of the house. Um, but at, at the same time as well, if this goes on for too long, then a lot of the organisations who work within that sector who are reliant on grant funding and um, reliant particularly on things like uh, council money and, uh, and other kinds of discretionary funds. Uh, and also a lot of freelancers are not going to be able to continue their work afterwards. So for this sector, trying to put it on hold temporarily isn't really a thing. It's likely to have much longer lasting impacts. Um, so I, I think there are obviously organizations that are trying to adapt. We've seen a huge outpouring of digital arts and cultural engagement, for example. But, and, and there are benefits from that as well. But I think that if we're thinking about the long-term future and how to support mental health, then I think then the, the, uh, the benefits that we normally get from the arts sector are, are lacking and that, that we need to be thinking a lot more about how we support that sector in order to support mental health. Yes. Yeah, just to, to reinforce that, I mean, the What Works Centre on Wellbeing have published a lot of studies 
relating to the impact of uh, arts and culture uh, on well-being. And, you know, there are lots of projects around that have demonstrated success. It's also interesting that in America, um, the New Deal program, after the Depression, um, the Americans basically funded artists to go and make pictures of various things. I mean, can you imagine, you know, this is um, that, that wonderful uh, capitalist society was, was directly funding art and creativity. So I think there's a lot to be said for us thinking about whether there's a role for any of that in the future as we, as we come through and we think about what are those areas where we support those sectors that have been adversely impacted through no fault of their own during this last period? So I think I, I think I probably can anticipate the answer to your to, your, to this question, but it is such an uh, a, a question that people are asking a lot. So Abby Hennessy asked, "Well, what about introducing a universal basic income during the pandemic?" Now I'm anticipating you're you're going to argue for a universal basic job with purpose, but I may be I may have unanticipated I may have anticipated my panel incorrectly there, Richard. So I'd hate to be negative because um, I've spent most of my life working on poverty uh, or, or unemployment, and um, uh, I've thought like many of us on this panel uh, about all the different ways in which you can um, help people to avoid poverty. Um, in a way that that is, is, is respects their dignity and um, and respects the interests of the tax taxpayers, um, but I think almost everybody I know who's worked seriously on this um, has come to the conclusion that universal basic income um, is not the best way because uh, it's just very expensive and you're giving money to a lot of people um, who don't need it. Um, so why, why not find better ways of providing income to uh, people who are in need and who otherwise uh, wouldn't have it? Um, I, mentioned, I mentioned the job guarantee is a very important way, but of course we should have better uh, in-work benefits and we should have better levels of income support for unemployment and also definitely better labels better levels of benefits for disabled people. We wouldn't be able to do any of those things properly <laughs> if instead we gave a universal basic, basic income, which would have to be lower than that, um, which would, would come out of essentially the benefits that would be paid uh, otherwise to other people in need. I also have a problem, an ethical problem with it. Um, I mean, money doesn't grow on trees. It, it's not true that the national income just happens. <laughs> it happens because people work. Um, and I think if somebody can work, um, they should be expected to work if they want to have, uh, have, have an income uh, from, the, the, from the society. Anybody else? Why don't you take that form? Yeah, I was just, just going to emphasize the purpose and meaning point again. I think... Um, that and it actually relates to, to pretty much everything. We, we can we can design environments that provide opportunities for people to engage meaningfully in their communities, in their work, through nature, through arts, through culture. That's what that's that's what we should be thinking about the post-COVID world, whenever that happens. Um, and and not essentially paying people to do Nothing. I think that's 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 the that's one of the fundamental problems with UBI. 
So one of the things that, that strikes me, and one of the questions that, that's come in, for example, from Hannah Murillo is, is, is how do we start capturing measures for putting mental health as an important criterion in policymaking? But one of the things that strikes me building from that question is, do we need a different scorecard? So Gus, you, you mentioned kind of as an aside that you're not a big fan of GDP. Um, and we know that other countries, so for example, New Zealand have introduced their living standards framework where you they focus on and recognizing their metrics aren't perfect, but um, they focus on economic growth for sure, including physical infrastructure, uh, but also social infrastructure, which Richard, you referenced right at the outset in, in your remarks, which one could include within that measures in relation to public services. So we've got a question from Anna Maria Pilat, which is about should we just be improving our public services so people understand where their taxes go? But social cohesion and social infrastructure could include cultural infrastructure, um, but also in relation to individuals, their own individual mental health and well-being, obviously the subject we're talking about here, uh, but also adding in as kind of the fourth bucket, fourth or fifth bucket, as it were, is the natural capital, which we kind of have touched on in terms of the natural environment and the impacts that that has on, on people's well-being and mental health. So seeing the interdependencies there. So should we be thinking about, as we build back better, having a different scorecard for what better would be? So I'm, if I can start off, I'd say absolutely that would be one enormous step forward. And this obsession we've had with maximising our GDP is just so stupid in that uh, you know, the example I always give is if all the volunteers in the world stopped volunteering at care homes or wherever and basically started prostitution or illegal drug selling, then GDP goes up because prostitution and illegal drugs count in GDP. Volunteering doesn't count. Um, it's crazy, right? And if you think about the gender biases in GDP, the implication is that we value only those things where there's an income. So women staying at home looking after children, no, sorry, you have no value whatsoever. So we built in, you know, this is very much one of the themes of um, invisible women. We built in these gender biases in our stats, which are massively important. So we've got to get away from this. Richard and I, as part of our all-party parliamentary group on um, economics of well-being, said the spending review should be built around its implications for improving well-being. Now, as you say that, that actually we should spend public money to improve people's lives as much as possible, the only possible question could be, well, why haven't we been doing that already? I mean, it's so obvious. I find it embarrassing to say this, but we don't do that. We don't know. It would be to pick up the point that, that um, Daisy was mentioning about mental health. You know, why is it that we've now got a lot more understanding? Some of the stigma has gone, but we're actually not spending more money on it is because it's lost within a health budget where we haven't actually said, no, we're going to spend this amount of money on mental health because we know it has this big impact. And to be honest, we have basically said it's on an equal parity with physical health, but we actually haven't put the money behind that statement. So we could start off by saying the next spending review will really try and improve the quality of lives of people in this country by enhancing their well-being. So what does that mean? I mean, that that would make a dramatic step forward. And I think the first thing we do then is we would start looking at education and we start measuring the well-being of kids in school and say yeah. it's not about getting exams. It's about creating kids who have purpose, to use Paul's phrase, who understand what's really important in life, who have resilience and all those 
characteristics uh, and that I think would make for a much better society. Absolutely. Daisy, do you want to, to come in on this? I'm, and I'm Richard, I know you do, but I'm going to go to Daisy I first. I enthusiastically because I agree with everything that Gus said and I think it's, it's, it's sometimes these things are still seen as the soft things, they're seen as the nice to have rather than the essential to have, but I, I think we really do need to reformulate that. But I'll pass over to Richard. No, I, I think what Gus said is a perfect roundup for this event, I must say. <laughs> I'm not, not sure I wanted to say any more, except to perhaps define parity of esteem for mental health because um, people love to say, oh, what a wonderful thing, um, but what, what, what on earth could it mean? It's very simple what it means. What it means is that if you have a mental health problem, you're as likely to get evidence-based treatment as if you have a physical health problem. And we are at the moment about three times uh, 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 less likely to get treatment if we have mental health problems as if we have physical health problems. So that is where if I had to say, if I was, if I was just given um, an, an extra couple of hundred million, I would put it all into the treatment, mental health treatment of young people. Any further thoughts or comments on that? One of the one of the questions also coming through uh, from Shen Chia Chung is is the role of families as we look to our social infrastructure. And Gus, picking up the point that you were making before in relation to you know women care, usually women caring for um, either younger children or older parents, in fact, not actually being recognised in, in any of our statistics. Um, and so the question is, is it possible to rest use this period of lockdown to review and re reinforce family structures and ways to support the family so it can become a source of stability? Um, now, obviously quite complicated because by family, we often are holding up a kind of an ideal type, which is a wonderful, very supportive environment, whereas in fact could be the worst environment you've ever experienced in your entire in your entire life. So I think we do need to be careful about what we're meaning about there. But just any thoughts as we're building social infrastructures that were what, what we're thinking about in relation to that family unit. Lots of hands going up there. Um, okay, Paul, I'll come to you first and then Gus and then Richard and then Carol and Daisy. You're gonna have to wave at me to to get in there. Paul. Well I want to answer I was gonna answer a different question that relates to that because it's about the diversity of thought and opinion and perspective that mm -hmm. sits in the discussions around family and anything else because I, it, I I wonder how many people making decisions have experience of either in their own lives or in those that are people that they know that where family life is very troubled um, and of course when we focus on mortality risks we can all we, we all have some knowledge or experience of that and we may have elderly family but you know, members and, and and that then becomes attention seeking because of the the nature of our experiences so i think if we're going to answer that question i think i'd be more comfortable that the answer is that that the process that we go through in order to answer it is as important as the consequence of the answer itself and so to ensure that we have diversity of opinion perspective and thought going into that conversation i think is every bit as yeah. important as the outcome itself Absolutely. Gus? I just picking up that point, it's interesting. Uh, we have a person who's had uh, a rather large number of family troubles. Um, he's suffered from obesity. He's had first-hand experience of the NHS. He's done a lot of stressful things, changing job, 
changing home, having a new baby, new partner. So maybe the Prime Minister's attitude to some of these factors will change somewhat. Uh, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by what we've heard about maybe taking obesity more seriously. And also, uh, there is a lot of talk internally about social care and looking back at, you know, the whole, the number of plans. We've got so many good plans on social care, Andrew Dillnuts or, you know, various versions thereof. We have got to do something about this. And I think that would help families enormously because the burden of care that's placed and it, it's not equally uh, placed around families, you know, those sorts of things where the state should be clear about what it should do and how it can help. I think that would make a big difference. And again, it would show up as a big in improvement in well-being. Richard. Yes. Um, I think there's also a, a huge link between many family problems and mental health problems. I mean, domestic violence is usually connected with alcohol addiction or drug addiction uh, or gambling addiction. Um, we're not properly treating addictions. Uh, we're not properly treating yet adequately uh, all the range of uh, adult uh, anxiety uh, and depression problems which lead to so much trouble inside families. And what is, I think, very striking to me is that there are very well evidence-based treatments for family conflict where parents are, in, where, or a couple with or without children are in conflict. There is a very good form of CBT called couples therapy. Uh, it is available, uh, we have, I think, now about 200 people who've been trained to provide it in Britain. And yet, if you think of Family conflict is probably the biggest single, most general cause of misery of any single type that you could think of in the country. And we, we, we've not thought of this as something where the rest of society can help. We used to think of it as the job of priests, but now we've got evidence-based ways of dealing with these things. And the, the health service is a, is a proper place to be dealing with these sort of personal problems, with these huge social ramifications for the people themselves uh, and their children. Also, there's the issue of prevention. And there are very good programs, a lot of work being done on this, to prevent family conflict before it starts. A lot of family conflict starts uh, as soon as the first child is born. People get dissatisfied with each other. Um, this, is, this is universally, uh, I don't mean to not... Not, not every couple, but every society, uh, this is found to happen. Um, very good programs around the time of the first childbirth, one called Family Foundations, shown to have a huge effect on whether the couple stay together uh, and become good parents. So I think we're, we're talking here about a, a, a slightly wider role for the state. Not, it's not the nanny state we're talking about, because these are... Uh, supports that should be offered to people if they want them. But people are desperate over these issues. Uh, and uh, the best way we can provide them uh, is typically uh, through things like the National Health Service. And I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's, this is the time to think a little more widely about what society can do for us and, as well as, of course, what we can do for society. Uh, and... Um, you know, the role of the state didn't previously include education or physical health. 
Now I think it's uh, it's got into these largely because it wanted to produce better soldiers and better workers. And I think the state can help people to become better parents, better better partners, better citizens if they want to. And uh, it's not very expensive because it's so much money. So one of the questions coming in is uh, from James Clark has been talk of measuring national happiness for some time. But if we if we were to go down that road, or indeed my wider scorecard, uh, would the markets punish us from moving away from GDP maximisation? I think. Well, if I could start, I mean the answer is we've been uh, we've been measuring well-being now since uh, 2011 nationally with the ONS. It's a national statistic, so we have been doing this. Um, I don't think I think the market's beginning to realise, and they soon will, that the GDP numbers are going to move dramatically both ways, and that's uh, completely out of the understanding of our previous models. Um, and they're going to realise that it's not quite uh, the world hasn't the world isn't the worst it's ever been for three hundred years, you know. So um, they'll, they'll I think get these things together. I don't think we should worry too much about market reactions. I think the uh, the, the markets, in a sense, will learn to look at what governments care about and what governments understand is, is the most important things in people's lives. So um, I don't think we should be slaves to a figure, GDP, which when Simon Kuznets, the economist, put it together right at the start, says the one thing you mustn't do is use this as a success measure. Blow <laughs> me, that's what we've been doing. Right? Good heart's law, uh, writ large. Um, okay, I want to pivot away, actually, if we can, to, to thinking um, about the international response. And, and Gus, you referenced the, the G20, and, and Duncan Spark has sent a question quite early on, actually, um, picking that up. Um, comparing to the 2008 financial crisis, when we had three G20 leaders summits in 18 months, obviously we had big international coordination, big regulatory coordination coming out from that time and is asking well what's gone wrong this time i realize we are now pivoting over to international geopolitics but um the question being is the g20 broken well sorry if i if i can i'd say it's not so much the g20 depends upon leadership and you have to think about where's the leadership from during the global financial crisis gordon brown played a massive leadership role in that he, uh, I remember being with him on the plane where we hoovered up all of the economic history books about the Great Depression and the like, and he wanted to learn the lessons. And the big lesson was don't fall back into protectionism. Get the world on side and make sure not everybody has beggar my neighbour policies. So uh, he worked with the EU. Number one, we worked with the EU. We were a power block. We used our influence inside the EU to be able to bring the world together. We worked with a president of the United States who understood and had read the stuff about the Great Depression and had learned the right lessons. So that symbol of what's gone wrong this time, which to me is the Nightingale Hospital, there in London, that was, that's at the Excel Center. That was the site of the G20 conference where, I mean, Gordon uses this phrase, save the world. We did actually bring everybody together we made uh, commitments not to go into protectionism. They were mostly adhered to. If you look at what's happening now, we've got PPE where everyone's hoarding their own equipment. And we've got the issue, if we get to a vaccine, what's going to happen? Uh, are we going to spread that around the world to where it's most needed? 
or is it going to go to the places that can most afford it? So international coordination is massively important, but it does need leaders. And when you've got, I'm afraid to say, the situation we have at the moment where we're not exactly going to be able to lead through Europe. Uh, I don't think President Trump sees himself as running, as using the G20 or basically any international grouping uh, to solve these problems. I think we are in a much more difficult place and that's had consequences. Absolutely. No, I think I can see that. So I think we have some, I just want to do one or two final questions actually, um, which have been coming in and there's quite a lot of concern about how we move, obviously how we move forward from this. And we've touched about that in relation to people's income, security, mental health, etc. But going back, as we touched on before, to the mental health effects of the lockdown and, and, the, and the extent of the fear and anxiety that's been created by, um, by that lockdown and linking in the misery to morbidity, which incident mortalities. And the questions coming um, expressed, I think, best by Toby Chambers is if an early unlock creates a context for a more deadly second wave, will the misery and mortality even more deadly in, in the second time around. Otherwise, can we cope with going through this again? If we have to go through these different phases, um, how well positioned are we going to be in terms of in terms of our mental health and well and well-being, given all the anxieties we've just been talking about? Um, Daisy, I think the truth is we don't know. Um, the, the closest that we have probably is the, uh, literature on incarceration. So we know that people who go in and out of prison multiple times, as they go into lockdown on multiple occasions, their mental health tends to get worse. So in other words, the cumulative experience of multiple lockdowns might start to take more of a toll. But I think a huge amount of this isn't going to just be about what happens with the waves. It's also going to be about the social implications of this. So if we find that with each successive wave, there are more worries about employment and finances and also more job losses, more difficulties or worries about accessing food or medications. In other words, if there's greater disruption to life, I think we're likely to see a much clearer negative effect on mental health. Whereas if we can learn from this first wave and have many more um, systems and processes and reassurances in place, we may find that we're able to buffer against some of these adverse mental health effects as we go into future waves. Thank you. Gus, you wanted to come in and then Paul, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry, Richard. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, Gus, go on. Right. Sorry. Um, I mean, yes, we want to avoid a, a second really big wave. I think we'll get wavelets, whatever we do. But if we've got test, track and trace in place we, and, and the number of cases is small enough, then I think that's feasible. Um, I, I would say politically, uh, Prime Minister won't want to, you know, he's going to err on the side of caution in all of this. Uh, and I think we'll see that in the way it's taking quite a long time and the steps will be quite small steps as he's talked about it. So I, I would say we will learn as we go along, but we'll learn mostly from other countries because other countries have done this ahead of us. Uh, we won't learn much from ourselves because the, the gaps, the data lags are such. But hopefully I think we'll be in a stage where uh, we won't have a second wave because that, I agree, would have... Uh, very, very bad impacts. And I think well, for all the reasons that Daisy said, we need to make sure we're in a stage where we unlock in the right way, which we can, I think, uh, quite well, but maintaining physical distance rules, which will reduce risks and think carefully about the most vulnerable groups, for sure. which are old fat men. Oh. <laughs> Richard, 
Pero, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but this is <laughs> I'm glad you didn't come to me next. Anyway, I'm glad you're going to Richard. <laughs> <laughs> He's in better shape than you, Paul. So, <laughs> oh, shut up, <laughs> Richard. Well, I, I, guess, I guess I'm the oldest person here on the screen. Um, uh, uh, just following up on, on Gus's point, I mean, I it seems to me unthinkable that we would go back ever into a, a full lockdown. I, I, I think it would be unjustified because of everything we've been talking about, the yeah. extraordinary age imbalance in this threat. And one thing we haven't discussed is what has been done in China, for example, mm -hmm. which is that to protect the old, you split households up. And if somebody is infected in a household with an old person, you take them out of it or you take the old person out. So you have these hotels where you protect the old, And I think that some of our empty hotels should be used as sanctuaries for the old, living in multi-generation households, which is where most of the old are catching their diseases if they're not catching them um, in care homes. We've got to find ways of separating off the, the people at risk from the rest of the population. Um, otherwise, we'll be sacrificing the rest of the population. Yeah, no, I, I, that's actually, I, I completely agree. I think we knew from the Diamond Princess onwards, um, you know, what the relative risks were by by age. And shielding policies of some kind or another are going to be the arguably only sustainable way through where we are now. And that, of course, turns a lot on when we get a vaccine. And I think it's interesting that, I, I, you know, again, I kind of make this point that a lot of the discussion has been around the sort of expectation that that's coming within a six months or a, or a year. And of course it may, it may never come. And, and so I think we, we, I think we, we ought to be reframing that conversation about what happens if it never does. Um, and, and so I think the only sustainable way will be through some kind of shielding policies. I think, I don't, I don't think we can go through, we can go through this, these waves of lockdown release, lockdown release. I don't think that's at all tenable. Yeah. Carol, last word to you on this. I was just going to agree with what everybody else says here. I think yeah. we know how to not go into full lockdown again, and we need to use that knowledge that we've gained from here and elsewhere. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, indeed, all of you, and thank you to everybody who's been joining us uh, remotely. That's been, I found that a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to everybody who was sending in your questions. I think I managed to cover most of them either directly or, or by rolling them up together because a number of you were interested in different and uh, similar themes. So um, incredibly rich discussion. Thank you again very much to the panelists, and uh, we'll see you for our next event. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Bye. Bye.